welcome to Just Ask, the podcast of The Hive Collective, a digital health platform built to empower women to make educated and informed decisions about their health. I'm your co-host, Dr. Heather Quayle, a leading women's and gender-related nurse practitioner. We provide answers to the questions you may not know how to ask by interviewing experts in nursing, medicine, sexual health, and wellness. We started in 2020 with myself and colleague, Dr. Tara Thompson, pharmacist, and now welcome our co-host and leading women's health expert and nurse practitioner, Jackie Piasta. This is a safe space where no question is off limits, and we advocate and encourage listeners to just ask their most intimate questions and to break down the barriers of embarrassment and taboo. I'm Jackie Piasta, your other co-host and fellow Queen Bee of the Hive. Each month, we bring on a new guest that is an expert and healthcare innovator in their respective field. As the healthcare landscape rapidly evolves, we are excited to be on the cutting edge and have decided to evolve the podcast into the Hive Collective, a space that seeks to equip you to better navigate your health journey. To learn more about our new and exciting platform, check out our mission, vision, values, and initiatives as we discuss our rebrand in Season 4, Episode 1. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We're excited you're here and hope you enjoy our show. Hello and welcome back to the Just Ask podcast. Today, Heather and I are so, are so, so, so very excited to bring you our guest speaker today. Um, Amy Cloutier is a female sexual health patient advocate with 10 years of progressive experience researching, educating, and advocating for patients on a variety of vulvovaginal, pelvic, and sexual health topics. She created and launched the first non-healthcare system-based digital resource in Minnesota dedicated to providing unbiased evidence-based resources to women and those with vulvas about their vulvar and sexual health. She is passionate about partnering with patients to help them overcome the obstacles to finding unbiased, science-backed resources that make it easier to understand their health conditions, how to find the healthcare professionals who are knowledgeable and experienced in treating these more complex cases, and she also facilitates educated patient decisions and active participation in their care. Amy has been a member of the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, or ISHWISH, as you always hear us say, um, that organization since 2019 as a patient advocate and gave a presentation on online health information seeking and how advocates are helping patients navigate a novel approach to diagnosing and treating recurrent UTIs and urogenital syndrome or GSM at the 2022 annual Ishwish conference. It was an amazing talk. Um, I encourage you guys to also listen to that one on Ishwish. Amy has written many articles on topics that aren't covered other places, like the role probiotics have in combating yeast, or does my vag seriously have seasonal allergies, and the vulvovaginal allergy response, and her most popular facts about vaginal boric acid treatments, where she goes into detail about vaginal boric acid does and does not work, as well as the common dosing and yeast protocols is. Something she says healthcare providers fail to provide instruction on if they even mention boric acid at all. So true. She has an app in development, counsels, and educates people and patients online, always has an article or two in the works, as well as many other projects in the brainstorming phase, all while working a full-time job. 
Amy is amazing. She is active mostly on Twitter and Reddit, but you can find the Healthy Hoo-Ha organization on all platforms under at Healthy Hoo-Ha as well as healthyhoo-ha.com. I added some ad lib in that bio because I just think Amy is fantastic. I've gotten to know her over the past couple of years and we are so excited for our listeners to get to talk to you today, Amy. So welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Tara and Heather. Thanks for having I am- me. I am so excited to have you. I'm also going to caveat with what Tara said, Amy, we've had a patient on here, but we actually, and who kind of told her story, but we haven't had a true patient advocate. So Tara and I try to do a lot of advocacy work, but you really are the heart of advocacy. This is what patients want to hear. They want to hear they're not alone. They want to hear that someone else is going through what they've gone through. They want to hear they're not broken, all those parts and pieces. So um, thank you again for being here and let's just kind of like unravel it from the beginning like what brought you to this what's your story kind of tell us your this whole lifeline and what brought you into this and the healthy hoo-ha okay thanks heather so much for that um yes patients still still today feel so isolated um you can imagine how a lot of women felt you know 10 20 30 50 years ago when a lot of this stuff um, one wasn't even talked about Two, We didn't have the research data for it. I mean, ISWISH alone, um, when I first started my journey, it was only two years old. I mean, this was back in 2000. They were only two years old. Um, so my journey is um, about, I was about 20 years old in 2000. And I had, I was on hormonal birth control, um, which played a little bit up of part, but it was also genetic as well. Um, so there's pros and cons there, but I had no libido. It was terrible. My poor husband thought that I had no interest in him at all, <laughs> but, um, it was actually something that was wrong with me. Um, and retrospectively, I, I want to say when I'm along my journey could tell that there were some indicators as I was growing up, but, um, it was mostly things that once I was 20 years old and on that I said, something is, something is actually not working correctly. So I went to see a doctor. Um, he, you know, was a very nice doctor, but he did say to go home and read romance novels, um, thinking that, you know, that would spark, you know, the, the brain aspect to get me interested in the sex. Well, I mean, that might have worked while I was reading, but you put the book down and I mean, that kind of goes, you go back to doing the dishes. That's not you know, a long-term solution, nor should it be a solution in any case. Um, and I felt a little defeated. And so I um, just moved on with life. And then about, um, I don't know, about eight, 10 years later, I, it, it was, it was weighing so much on me. And I just, I'm like, I can't keep doing this. So I saw, I, I thought I'd go to the university of Minnesota. They have to have Sure. A school should have it all, you know, school, they should know especially the, the, one of the top research universities in the country, they they have a special sexuality or a sexual health department. They've got to know what's going on. So I went to them and while they had great providers there, um, I was still only about 28 at this point. And um, so the provider said, you know, I, I'm not testing your hormones. You're too young to have any hormonal problems. I want you to go see the sex therapist. I said, okay, uh, you know, I'll do, I'll go through the hoops. I'll, you know, I'll do all these things you want me to do, but I imagine I'm going to see you here in a few months. And so I went and saw the sex therapist. We did all the things 
I tried all the little homework, all the stuff. It wasn't helping. So I went back to, and I wanted it to help. I really wanted this to, I was open to this being the solution, um, but it wasn't helping. I was having physical problems. So I went back to that specialist at the university and I said, please, for the love of God, please test my hormones. I know something is physically wrong with me. She refused. There's nothing, you're, you're too young for these hormonal problems. Um, one of the biggest issues is that I had periods on a monthly regular cycle which we're coming to find out now, um, does not necessarily indicate that your hormones are functioning properly, nor are you getting hormones at the vulvovaginal receptors. Anyway, um, this was a big reason why they wouldn't test my hormones. So I gave up again. Um, I, another few years went by and my husband and I wanted to try to have our own child. And so I went off of the hormonal birth control um, I gave it a few months. We tried, nothing happened. I um, went to a fertility specialist and um, while they said, okay, we need to test your hormones because you're clearly not getting pregnant. My hormones were within the normal ranges, but they were basically bottom of the barrel. Um, and so she said, we can't really give you any, any hormones. Here's some Clomid to try to stimulate your ovulation. That didn't even work. Um, and she said, well, I can't really figure out what else is going on with you unless we dump tens of thousands of dollars into trying to figure out, you know, all this exploratory surgery and all of these IVF things. And I, I said, I'm not doing that. I, I just, I'm not, I'm not doing that. So I gave up again. Um, a couple of minutes went by. I said, no, I cannot let myself keep giving up. I'm 31 at this point. I cannot continue on my entire life. But by this point, like half my life is half my, at least my sexual life is over. I can't let the whole entire life go by. So I said, no, I've got to keep finding. I found a sexual health specialist at a um, clinic system in my area. And I didn't know at the time that she was part of ISWISH. I found this out later, but I went to see her. It was one of those appointments that you're in there for like an hour and a half. We went through all my things. She says, here's all the things I know. I believe what I know what's wrong with you. And she told me all this, all the different um, diagnoses, which um, we can get into if we want to. Um, they were, no, I would love you to say it. Like, I mean, we don't have to okay. get into semantics of it all, but again, it's the things that I want our patients to hear when they listen. I want them to hear hypoactive sexual desire. I want them to hear vestibulodynia. Yeah. I want them to hear all those words. Okay. Because it tells so she told they're me, not broken. <laughs> she told me that a good portion of my issue was the hormonal birth control because it was suppressing um, the, the, the purpose of suppressing ovulation is that it shuts down the HPO access in order to stop the ovulation. So that was playing a role. It was preventing my body from getting any hormone that I could possibly be making. Um, so that validated some, some of my... Um, worries there, but she said, you know, a bigger portion is that you just have whatever genetic issue is happening with you. Um, you're not making enough hormones because we, we retested after I'd been off the birth control for a while. She says, you're not even making enough hormones in your blood, you know, to float around in like your blood. And on top of that, those the hormones that you are making are not being utilized by your vulvovaginal tissues. There's like a, we're, we're, we're learning that there's, there might be a receptor issue with a very, very small subset of the female population. Okay. So what that means is we're going to diagnose you with provoked vestibulodynia, 
um, the HSDD, which is the hypoactive sexual desire disorder. Um, and then um, I had a very, very small case of um, vaginismus, which she can't, at, with all the other things that was going on, she said, I can't tell if this was a lifelong or this was a reaction to all the other pain that you were having with your penetration um, and the, and the um, HSDD. Um, the pain with penetration, um, again, I, I want um, a lot of the listeners to understand is when you go in, if a, if a doctor does ask you about pain with penetration, um, sometimes they might ask if you have pain with sex. I didn't have pain with sex. I had pain with that immediate bit of penetration right at the vestibule. And once sex um, continued after a few seconds, that pain was generally gone. Um, thankfully on my part, on my part, but I want patients to really pay attention to separating out that information. Are you having pain with penetration with, um, during a sexual experience? Are you having it with tampons? Does it stay? Does it go away? Is there pain with sex in general? Where is that pain located? Because the more you tease this stuff out, the easier it's going to be for that doctor to help you figure out what's going on. So spot on, like we don't yeah. ask that enough. I mean, you go to a sex medicine person, of course, they're going to ask those nuances, but it gets back to my whole soapbox of sex education. Like what is sex? Like if you ask them, oh, are you having pain with sex? Well, is that oral? Is it penetrative? What does that even look like for somebody? Um, it's just too generic of a question. Yeah. So I, I, I bawled when she told me all this, of course I bawled because I felt validated, um, and so if you're not getting validated, at least validated in your experience, um, mm -hmm. find somebody who's at least going to validate your experience. Um, even if they can't necessarily help you just by them and validating your experience, you can usually rely on them to give you resources to find somebody who can help you. Um, thankfully I had a, a provider who could do both. Um, so we got myself, uh, we got me on, on my way of, um, healing, but, um, while all this was happening, um, I was working at the university, and so I had access to um, all of the PubMed um, and all of the research articles behind all the paywalls, and it's in my nature to dig into research. Um, I don't really Google a whole lot. I dig into what the research tells me first, and then maybe look on Google for patient stories and things like that. And so, for, I don't know, for like 10 years, I amassed this huge, huge amount of data, just diving down rabbit holes every second that I could. Um, and uh, so I was just kind of learning about my own, my own experiences, how to help myself, things like that. And um, I'm not, I wasn't very big on social media, um, but I had a friend who said, go check out this funny thing on Reddit. And so I looked on Reddit um, and I was, and then I kind of like looked around and I came across the subreddit healthy hoo-ha. And it was all these women um, or people assigned female at birth who were having very similar um, experiences to me. And this was about the 2017, 18, 19 year. Um, and I felt like I had found kind of like this kinship. And so I started helping people by um, um, commenting on their questions, all of the knowledge that I had amassed. But I found that I was repeating my knowledge over and over, like every day and with multiple questions. 
And I said to my husband, I said, I, I cannot, like, I, this is crazy. I can't, I'm spending hours. can't keep up and it's exhausting. And even just repeating the same thing, even if it's about the same condition or the same treatment, I'm repeating myself. Like this is, there's gotta be a better way. Um, and I couldn't really find anything online talking about the same things that I specifically was talking about. There were a couple of things about maybe sex ed, some sexual abuse, some trauma, some things like that, but I couldn't find the things that I was specifically helping people understand. Um, and so I started the website, healthyhoo-ha.com, um, uh, thinking that the, the whole world needed to um, have this name as a resource. So I started the website in order to publish articles of, of all of the information that I was learning um, on the different subjects to get, um, I found that I had a knack to turn um, like science jargon into language that- um, Layman's terms. <laughs> Layman's terms that everybody could understand. And so I'm like, okay, all of this stuff that I've learned, I need to turn it into things that people can understand so that I can- direct people. I can also, you know, comment in the, in the subreddit, but I can also direct them for much more in-depth information that they can understand. And so the Healthy Hoo-Ha brand has turned into this like huge patient advocate, like work that I do. So there's the, the social media stuff that I do, the articles that I publish, the, the um, collaboration with medical professionals, the, the speaking engagements, the apps that I'm, that I'm working on, the, the networks. And so it's just turned into this huge thing. <laughs> Which is incredible. So, so now that you've taken all this, like, what do you do as an advocate so that, so that our patients understand? Like you have the website, but what exactly are all the parts and pieces that help them to kind of get your information and what do you do to help them? Yes. So let's start with um, what I suppose Google and what some other organizations say patient advocate is commonly just defined as. So it's a patient, a medical provider, which is typically a nurse um, or an organization who is often but not always concerned with one specific grouping of a disorder or health condition. Um, they specializing in the concern of patients, survivors, and caregivers to develop new resources or help patients utilize current resources available. So there's other patient advocacy groups um, that, that handle things like cancer, maybe some abuse, um, uh, some things like that, some sex ed, things like that. But there wasn't really um, any happening for sexual and pelvic urogenital health um, issues. So what I do and what a lot, a couple of my other um, rock star sexual and pelvic health patient, uh, patient advocates that I'm involved with, what we typically do is um, we seek out that evidence. So some of the things, there's a, there's a few, but we seek out that evidence-based information so that we are spreading the, um, the good information and helping to dispel maybe some of the bad information that um, we won't, we won't mention, but there's, there's some bad things out there that some things that people might be inserting or treatments that they might be trying. Um, there's, there's a huge kick out on TikTok about like doing your Kegels. Well, not everybody needs Kegels because they might have a hypertonic or a, a you know, a, a, a hypertonic yeah, pelvic floor. And so Kegels is the bad thing to eat on that thing to do. And so we try to help patients understand what 
all of this stuff means, what, what it all, like how to disseminate all this information that's bombarding them on social media. Some other things that we um, can do is provide them resources on how to find the, the, the right medical provider. Um, a lot of patients think that a, it, whether even if they're a, a male patient, they go to the urologist. Well, the urologist isn't necessarily going to know some of the um, more in-depth conditions and treatments to help um, the male patient. A female patient will think, I'll go to my gynecologist. They've taken that extra um, time to learn about all of this stuff. They're, they're going to have all of this knowledge when in fact, <laughs> most of the gynecological training is how to um, handle things like you know, babies, um, how to do a pap smear and um, how to prescribe birth control. They don't actually get trained on the dermatological conditions like lichen. They don't get trained on vulvodynia and vestibulodynia or um, all of the um, different pain medications to handle these things. And so we help patients locate um, the specialists that can handle all of their issues. We also um, collaborate with different medical providers so that we can provide those medical providers with the information coming straight from the patients. Because a lot of times, even though these providers are seeing patients all day long, patients aren't telling their doctors things and they're not absolutely being, <laughs> yeah. being completely transparent with their doctors. They're not, they're not providing the doctors with the vocabulary in order to get things fixed. And so we can provide those medical providers with all of this stuff that we're hearing, the boots on the ground information. Um, we work with medical schools to try to change their curriculum so that we can get those providers better um, education right off the right off the bat. Um, so those are, uh, we put like, uh, the different websites that each of us have to provide information there. So it's just like the different things that we are um, providing there. We bring, do you want to talk about the awareness? We, um, we talk about bringing awareness for conditions um, and uh, the various treatments that can come with those conditions. We also talk about um, various medications, which are, can sometimes be different than the treatments. Um, and a lot of the possible, um, side effects that can come with medications as a lot of patients who are at this point where they've seen a bunch of doctors, the doctors might've told them about the common side effects. But if you're at this point, a lot of these patients are going to fall into those categories of the, those, those very, very small percentage. And so those are the kinds of patients who are going to need to know what those, what those very small adverse effects are, because us patient advocates, our main goal is that informed consent, um, as 100%. well as finding resources. hundred percent. And I think I want to put a plug in there for you too. Like she, um, I met Amy because of going to Iswish, which you hear Tara and I talk about a lot. So not only does she help 
medical, she's talked about medical schools and medical people, but she's going in and talking to even the experts because even the experts, as much as we may think that we know a ton, we're always learning. We're always there to hold the, hold our patient's hands in the journey. Um, and that's where you bring so much light because you're experiencing it firsthand. And there are things that we haven't even figured out being in the expert world or out processing and working with patients on day in day out. So I think that that's just really pivotal. And I want our patients and our listeners, but we even get medical people to listen to this, who've been doing this for a long time, um, that it's just so amazing that you felt brave enough to come to the top of the top society in sexual medicine to say like, this is what we experience as patients. And this is what you need to be hearing. Um, so that that just means a lot to me as a provider. Um, knowing that there are people out there that feel comfortable enough to help us be better. Yes. And I I want to thank Iswish for being on the forefront of creating a patient advocate um, membership. Um, They recognize that without patients, when without the knowledge from their patients, they are not going to get better at being a provider. Um, cause they can kind of get stuck in their little research and their own little uh, stuck in their way you get stuck in your silo and you get, yeah. st- or you get stuck in doing what you do best. So you may be a vestibulodynia expert, but what if you get the patient that has persistent genital arousal or pudendal neuralgia and you get stuck in your silos of things we now know, Oh, that patient was there or, Oh, these people are the experts in it. And I think that's why I love that society so much um, is so that we may be siloed, but we're not siloed. Yeah. (laughs) If you will. Um, So you've, you've talked about just a little touch on just the awareness that you bring about around those medical conditions and treatments and side effects. So I know that you do a ton around probiotics and things of that nature. So can we talk a little bit about some of the things on your journey that have helped you? Tara's mentioned boric acid, and I know I want to kind of talk about what you have found in your literature, what's worked debunking a lot of the things that we hear too. Yeah, so I uh, dove deep, deep into PubMed. Um, and it, my husband sometimes says, you got to come up for air. Like, seriously, you just, you got to come up for air. Um, the reams of paper, I can't read on a digital platform. I retain nothing. So I have That's to- like me. I remember doing my doctorate uh, work so- and it was like this high. And it's like, reams. what do you do with all that paper? You probably wasted a hundred trees. <laughs> Yes, but I'm helping people. Um, so and I like I, to highlight yeah. and write and all of that on my papers. Uh, so I was digging into. I, I was I was having a, a bout of um, recurrent, um, at least what I thought were recurrent BV and yeast infections. And while I was having them, can I ask real fast before you delve on? Was that while you were on the pill? No, when you were having it. Okay. Nope. Um, I, I figured out, so this was even after I got my initial diagnosis. So this was probably 2017 and 18. Okay. Um, and this is when about 2018 or 19, I received the additional diagnosis of the, um, vulvar vestibulitis, which I know that the nomenclature is trying to get away from that term. Um, and they're calling it now, I think, inflammatory vulvodynia. Mm-hmm. Um, or I think it's inflammatory, it may be inflammatory vestibulodynia. 
Yeah, some, something like something that. Something like that, and I'm probably where... watching it. I'm going to correct us right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go to the algorithm. Um, but mine is essentially, I don't really have pain. Um, I have, um, this particular diagnosis was because I'm having a lot of itching and rawness um, that is um, related to the increase in mast cells and histamine, and it gets better when I use the steroid ointment that I'm prescribed. Um, so this is different than those who have the vestibular dinia, which where they have pain and things like that. But during this journey, um, because of the symptoms I was having, I thought that I was having chronic um, yeast infections and possibly BV infections when it turns out that only about 30% of those symptoms turn out to be candida. Anyway, because I was having so much itching and rawness, I thought I'm having these chronic yeast infections. So I dove into what science knows is fixing these chronic yeast infections. And one of the um, fixes, if you will, was um, a probiotic or a beneficial bacteria, Lactobacillus crispatus. There are a couple of others that are in play here, um, but the major like player in all of the probiotics in the vaginal realm is that Lactobacillus crispatus. Um, we know that um, the vagina needs the beneficial bacteria um, in order for the vaginal immune system to work properly. There's a whole lot of um, things that go into how we maintain that good microbiome, um, but probiotics in particular, um, they, they provide us with kind of a little bit of a boost of those beneficial bacteria. Um, and I have a little soapbox about people taking just a generalized probiotic um, because they typically include the ones that are needed for the gut, but there are some specific ones that are needed for the vagina. And there's about eight of them. And there's, there's a couple of brands that have all eight. Um, I, don't, um, I don't know them all, um, but as long as you find one that contains the lactobacillus crispatus, um, it should also contain majority of the other ones that you need. And why that one is the powerhouse is that science is finding that that one is what produces the most lactic acid and hydrogen peroxide um, that the vagina needs in order to maintain. So lactic acid will uh, maintain the pH um, in that low range, which we obviously know we need to prevent the BB infections. Um, but it also produces that high hydrogen peroxide, which is a, so it's a, it's a microbicide, which is a fancy way to say that it, it helps like kill off all the bad guys. Um, so, but the, the crispatus is only high in numbers in that follicular phase. So in the first half of your cycle, in the second half of your cycle, um, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher these names, but there's in the second half of the cycle, the, the two that are higher um, in the luteal phase are L ruteri and L rhamnosus, I think it's called. And those two actually act like boric acid in that they break down the biofilms of of uh, all the organisms and the pathogens in the vagina. Um, so that's why those, those um, three are really important to make sure that they're in your probiotics. Um, 
they, uh, you can find ones that um, have an astronomical amount of what's called CFUs contained in each of the pill. And I want to make patients aware that you don't need these astronomical amounts um, for two reasons. The data shows that we don't need the astronomical amounts. We need about 10, at least the study data shows that we need about 10 to 20 billion twice a day. But the data also shows that the body will self-regulate. So in someone who has um, beneficial bacteria in either their gut or their vagina, if you're dumping in just this astronomical amount of probiotics every day, the body just, it won't utilize them. It will say, I don't need this. I don't know why you keep giving this to me. It's expensive um, urine is what I, I'd say that about some vitamins. Like don't, it is. Like it's just really expensive urine. <laughs> it is. Um, it, it will use what it needs and it will dump the rest. So don't pay a more for those super high numbers and don't try to ingest like a million pills a day because your body will just get rid of it. It doesn't need it. Um, it it'll, it'll, it'll keep what it needs. Um, so, but then that brings me to this other bit of data that is out there that I don't think medical professionals are talking about. Um, and it's, it's this huge, huge paper that this, that the journal cell put out. Um, granted it's only on the gut, um, but a lot of things that we know about the human body, we can translate to the vagina and we just haven't done yet. So I wanna make sure that patients are also aware that while this is only on the gut, keep this tidbit of information in mind when you go to take your probiotics. Um, what we found was that um, doctors are now thankfully saying, take this antibiotic that I prescribed you, but also go get a probiotic to replace the beneficial bacteria that you need. Okay, that's great. Um, but the, the gut that when you ingest these probiotics, the intestines, um, so when you take that antibiotic, let me back a little, when you take the antibiotic, you basically decimate most of your, of your beneficial bacteria along with the bad. Okay, so we need to replace that. They found that there was three cohorts. One, they, um, they gave the antibiotics, they gave everybody antibiotics and one cohort they gave what's called a fecal transplant to. And those patients recovered their microbiome the fastest. The uh, a second cohort they gave nothing to and those patients recovered their microbiome in 21 days. A third cohort they gave probiotics to. And they found that those patients um, colonized the specific strains that were in the probiotics, but that was the, the extent of the colonization. They didn't recolonize the quote unquote normal human microbiome. And this persisted for months. So depending on what probiotic you buy is the only beneficial bacteria that your intestines are going to colonize with. Um, and then they had those people stopped their probiotics and it still took those patients months to recolonize with the normal human microbiome. Now, obviously we have not done this in the vagina, um, but my brain kind of works in this like, this like matrix where I can kind of see, I can kind of see these, these 3D images. And I'm like, if we get, if our vagina gets a lot of our beneficial bacteria from 
just migration from the rectum, what are we, if we're taking these probiotics, what effect is it having on our vaginal microbiome returning to normal? And so I want patients to still consider taking those probiotics, but keep this in their back of their mind that, okay, I want, I don't need to take a ton. And two, I also need to make sure that I don't take this forever because I need my body to replenish its normal microbiome. And you can only do that if you stop supplying it with those very narrow probiotics uh, strains that are in that capsule. So does that kind of make, I, I'm probably oh, lost. No, you did it. It wasn't, <laughs> it definitely wasn't lost on me. I'm super fascinated. And I think you really explained it in a way that makes sense for our patients and lay people in a way. And there's so much more that I could just keep asking, asking, asking yeah. um, <laughs> on all of this. We could just go on and on and on for sure. Yeah. Um, but it's fast. I mean, the whole microbiome is something super fascinating to me. I know it is to Tara too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I spent so much time just, I mean, even there's just beautiful charts out there too, that show like what happens when it's in dysbiosis, which means that the different bacteria are sort of like fighting each other and one's growing more than the other. And what that does to your estrogen levels, your pH, your, um, even like your glycolic acids and everything in your, your vaginal microbiome. And so just, a, it's like a, the butterfly effect, a small disruption can, can really go a long way. And, um, you know, taking someone down the wrong path. And speaking of a small disruption, another point about the microbiome and and the probiotics and the beneficial effect, that whole thing, a lot of doctors will tell the patient, um, or if the patient asks, they'll say, you know, when can I have, when can I have sex after taking, um, for example, flagell for their BB infection? And the doctor will say, well, you should wait at least until the the treatment is finished. Um, that's a little too soon. According to research data, I want patients to know that, you know, if you're going to take the probiotic after taking something like Flagyl, it's recommended that you wait a minimum 10 to 14 days after your last Flagyl pill. Um, they're finding that it's taking the vaginal microbiome and those beneficial bacteria, regardless if you wait to let that happen by itself, or you take a probiotic, they're finding that it's taking 10 to 14 days for that microbiome to even start showing any kind of numbers, any kind of count, right, of, of, of beneficial bacteria after that last flagellate pill. So um, if you're struggling with getting things back regulated, try waiting those additional two weeks to see if things improve a little bit more. Awesome. Awesome. So, I know, I know our patients listening, just like they soak all of this information up because they, you can't hear it anywhere, especially from someone like you, Amy, who's been there, done that is a patient advocate. They trust you. So, um, we really, really appreciate your just insight and, um, your words, because it's different when it comes from you, when it comes from a patient to patient, it's different. It really is. Um, yeah, we, we can, we can talk to pay. I can talk to patients at the pharmacy all day. Heather can talk to patients at the practice and at her clinic all day, but 
when it comes from patient to patient, it's like, it's coming from your friend. And so they listen better. <laughs> I yeah, yeah. I found that. So, and when you try to find a patient, if you do try to find a patient advocate, or you find one of us online, um, even if it's not the, the, the couple that I regularly work with and, and, you know, retweet and share things of, if you find whoever you find, make sure that they are spreading evidence-based information. While there is a lot of um, resharing of information that is good, some of it isn't based in research. And while it doesn't necessarily make that it untrue, um, make sure that whatever is, is said that you are able to back it up with um, some, some data so that you can make the best decision for yourself. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even, even our students and interns that we have coming through the pharmacy or um, rotating through our site, if they're doing some sort of research for me, 100%, everything has to be cited. Their resources have to be there. It should be evidence-based always, not older than, you know, what is the standard seven years old or five years old or something like that study. Um, But yeah, that is just, that's a gold standard. You must always, always pull from not Google, but like you were talking about PubMed, PubMed is a database of clinical information and they have all the articles and journals and um, peer reviewed, you know, information out there. That's clinical trial evidence-based literature. That's all, that's all my stuff is published from. I I don't publish anything that is, um, that hasn't come from a research study. I, I, I'm seeing more and more that, that people are doing this. Um, I didn't see it when I first started, but all of my articles that I publish on my website do have all of the references um, at the bottom. So you can, not only can you trust that my, my, my sources are good, but if you think that I've provided bad information or something that's outdated, I welcome, um, and so do my other cohort, we welcome you helping us to correct whatever we've said, or even just correct me and say, no, you know what, you were wrong here and here's why. I welcome that because I wanna make sure that, that even though I might've published something at the time was correct or to correct my understanding, I wanna make sure that I continue to provide correct information. So please, I welcome anytime you see something that's wrong, let me know. Yeah, we, we're always like that as clinicians, providers, at least I hope most of my people are, I know I am, um, because yeah, there may be something out there and we may not have gone back and said, oh, you know, I published this X amount ago and yeah, there's new, we're always updating things all the time. So, mm-hmm. so how do our listeners find you? Because I know you probably will be even more inundated with questions and responses <laughs> after this podcast. That's fine. Um, I actually just uh, consulted with a woman a couple of days ago. Um, she she wanted. She said, "You know, how much do you charge?" I said, "Nothing. Please don't pay me. I don't want. <laughs> I don't do this for that." Um, but I so I have the website for sure. It's healthyhuha.com. Um, there and is. A- we'll make sure to link that when we put out the podcast. Thank you so much. There is a contact page on there that goes directly to um, the email, but you're also free to email me directly since it'll be um, on the podcast here linked. It's healthyhoohainfo at gmail. Um, then I'm also on Twitter, um, Instagram, TikTok, 
and Facebook, all under the same handle at Healthy Hoo-Ha. I am more active on some platforms than others, but I wanted to make sure that I had um, a, a presence on all of them so that depending on what information I wanted to provide, each of those platforms, as you, as you know, has a different format. And so like, I might have a little rant that I want to go on and the best platform for that is going to be TikTok. And then I'll share that everywhere else. Or if I have a graphic, um, the best platform for the graphic is Instagram. And so I have my presence in all of them. All of them, people can contact me. Um, I think some of them now are requiring, I think like Instagram, you can't message somebody without a request, no matter who or what they are. And so just, I can't even keep up anymore. It's so, it's yeah, so, so. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm on all of the platforms. I am on Reddit, but not under the name healthy hoo-ha um, simply so that the subreddit could maintain their ownership. Um, they do know that I am using the name. If anybody, you know, goes on there and says, hey, what is this thing? They do know that we aren't collaborating about the name, but I am not on Reddit under that name. Um, so, <laughs> uh, but if you email me, I will gladly share that username. I just, I, uh, I won't share it here, but if you email me and you really want it, I will share that name with you. But um, so I'm, I'm all over those places. I do have an app coming out soon and I will be sharing that news on all of us. so exciting. She told us a little yeah. tidbit about it. So get excited, people. Um, yeah, it's going to be a, it's going to revolutionize the way that patients communicate with their healthcare providers about their sexual pelvic and urogenital needs. Um, it's in beta testing right now. We're all very excited. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's what I have. I could, oh my gosh. Thank <laughs> you. You're, you're amazing. I just... You thank make, you. You make me a better provider. Uh-huh. Oh, thank you. And thank you for the work that you guys are doing. You are helping to spread the word among providers that they can do these things for us and the need for them to um, just be involved in any way that they can. Um, a little plug for the providers is that if you don't want to or can't um, help your patient diagnose please just know who to refer them to for the love of God, just have a contact list. (laughs) Yes. That's my biggest thing. And I think that's why I pound the pavement talking to primary care because they don't want to deal with it. I said, I know you don't want to deal with it. I know you're insurance based and you don't have the time, but please just know who to contact because there are people that will help your patients. Don't just tell them it's in their head or I'm sorry, can't help you. Right. Have a have a contact list of providers. Have a contact list of the patient advocates. Different websites, whatever whatever you can have in your arsenal to send that patient. Well, that'll be validation for that patient in itself, right? So, hundred percent. Yeah. Well, thank you, thank you again so much. We're honored to have you on here, and I'm Thanks. sure our patients will be so excited to listen. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. You're always such a breath of fresh air. I know that our listeners certainly certainly like to hear it from um, a patient advocate. And also knowing that there are organizations which patients can also be involved. So I know Ishwish has a membership option specifically for patient advocates. So um, that is an option if you are listening and you want to get involved on a, on a larger scale with the medical providers who are treating these. Um, conditions and also um, getting involved on committees 
um, through, you know, we have a website committee that we have, we have education, membership, um, there's all different kinds of committees. And if websites your jam, we take pay, we have advocates on our yes. website, Tara and I are website committee, and we have amazing advocates that write with us. And advocates are so needed because they actually bring it back down to earth and say, you guys can't write about that. Or you need to put this in there because. Put it in layman's be- terms. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're like. I know this is kind of last second, but I can, can I make that brought up something about um, patient advocate groups? Can I just talk about that real quick? um, I'm going to be writing a review manuscript on patient advocates. And so I've been looking at a lot of uh, what's already published out there. And I did mention earlier that there are some groups um, for like cancer and things like that, but there's these huge, huge groups uh, and they do wonderful wonderful work. Don't get me wrong. But the, I want to make sure that um, I know that there can be some stigma among um, healthcare providers when you talk about patient advocates. Some um, providers don't see the need, they don't see the benefit, things like that. Um, And I know that there's been some stigma before I found ISWISH. There are, um, there are patient advocates who are not involved or um, do the same kind of work that some of these conglomerate advocate groups do um, where there's a lot more red tape with those uh, groups. There are some of just these grassroots patient advocates who are just doing this um, for the sake of um, for free, for the sake of patients to never, ever have to go through what, what the advocate went through. And so um, if you are um, looking to maybe add a patient advocate to your arsenal, but you're like, you know, I've been kind of jaded. I've heard some, some, some hearsay about some of these groups, but you're like, you know what, maybe I should revisit that keep digging because a lot of us are just these grassroots individuals, small groups of people who are just doing this on our own, sometimes out of our own pocket. And we don't have all that red tape that some of these bigger groups have. And we can kind of get a lot more things done, I think, in my opinion. (laughs) I a hundred percent agree. No, thank Mm -hmm. you for putting that out there. Very important. Yeah, for sure. Well, awesome. We will, we will certainly link tag um, put out all of Amy's information that she talked about. We have all of yeah. those on our platform. So that way, if you're listening and you didn't catch that, um, you'll just be able to click on it. So again, awesome. um, from the bottom of our hearts, Amy, um, Heather, <laughs> thank and I you thank you so, so much, much for being here today. Um, this has been so helpful. We needed, we needed this for the podcast this season. We have not had a patient this season. So um, awesome. I'm happy to have you on. Yay. Well, until next time, thank you everyone for listening. And um, as always, follow us on um, Instagram at JustAskATL and also our Facebook page. But until next time, we will see you soon and be well. And don't forget to just ask your questions to your providers. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Just Ask podcast. And thank you for our amazing panelists today and every day. Feel free to contact us publicly or privately with your questions and thoughts. We do not provide medical advice, but we can point you in the right direction and provide resources. You can learn more about the topics we've discussed in this episode by viewing the show notes for this podcast and following us at Just Ask ATL on Facebook and Instagram. 
Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, Google, Amazon, and iHeartRadio. Please make sure you subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. If you found value in this discussion, please share this podcast with friends or leave a rating on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. We can't wait for you to join us for the next show.